let's begin. Thank you, everybody, who can make it tonight. Um, we are at the tail end of Tfilat HaShachar, of the, of the Shachrit, prayers of the morning. We finished our <clears throat> quicker-than-usual analysis of the Pitum Akhtarth and the final stages of the davening, which are said after the Shir Shalyom and the Svaradi Nusach. We mentioned that uh, eventually many different Breitot uh, were were said at the end of the davening, including the Breitot of the Ketoret, as well as the Breitot of Tana Deve Eliyahu and Namar Eliezer. Finally, we approach um, the final Kaddish and Baruchu before Aleinu. Now, before we begin with Aleinu, there is a... <clears throat> A discussion which needs to happen regarding this baruchu before Aleinu. So, if you think about it critically, baruchu is a is an insertion to the tefillah, which is a hazmana or an invit or an invitation. In general, when um, people when the chazan is going to say baruchu et Hashem hamevorach, right? Bless Hashem who is blessed. The kahal responds baruch Hashem avrach l'labaed. This is because the congregation is uh, authorizing the chazan to begin saying a blessing. This is, uh, we have this by Birkat HaMazon, right? We say, We have this before Yotzer Ar, where the minhag, the old custom was that the chazan was the only person who would, who would say the entire Yotzer Ar. We have it by Kriyat HaTorah, where the old minhag was that the person who was saying the bracha, the oleh, was also the person reading and therefore, he would ask for an invitation from the kahal, and the kahal would then elect him and authorize him to begin the bracha. By Aleinu, or before Aleinu, really, um, we don't have any such bracha. So what is this baruchu doing before Aleinu? So the source for this goes as far back, surprisingly, as far back as Masechet Sofrim, which is a very uh, late b'raita, but... Um, an early, very early source, probably 5th century, or somewhere around that time. Now, in the Brighton Masechet Sofrim, it begins with an interesting uh, claim, of an interesting statement. It says, I'm just going to read it quickly so that you have an idea of what we're discussing. We do not say Kaddish or the Baruch with less than 10 people. <coughs> This is because the Bavli holds that a Devashe Bekdusha needs Asara, and it learns it from a Pasuk, uh, from a pasuk of Toch Toch. Rabbeinu Shibimarav, however, our rabbis in the West, meaning the Yushami, uh, Tanaim, and Amoraim, I'm sorry, uh, I just accepted someone into the, into the class. So, the, the, um, the, the Yushami Minhag was, that even, it says, Omim Bishiva, with seven people, you have a minyan. Seven people, you could already say Baruchu and Kiddushah. V'notinin tamle devarim, and they give a reason. Why? Because they bring their own pasuk. B'froah piraot b'Yisrael v'tenadev am Baruchu HaShem. Kiminyan ha'tevot, as the number of the words, v'yesh omrim, and some say, shisha with six, ad Baruchu shishahu. So they bring a pasuk where they count the words until the words Baruchu et HaShem. And according to this b'rita, the minhag in Yush, among the Yushami Jews was that a minyan was not ten men, Minyan was six or seven men. This claim is astounding. 
Um, but we're going to move further before, I mean, we've mentioned this before in other classes, but I just want to look at, into it a little more deeply tonight. Um, the next thing the, the Braita says is, B'makom sham tisha o asara, in a place where there's nine or ten people, if you have nine or ten people who already heard Baruchu or Kaddish, and then after davening, a person gets up that he didn't hear, and he says Baruchu or Kaddish, they are, this man is Yotze. In other words, this girsa here in the Sofrim is that even if you have nine people, who heard Baruch Hu already, and one person came late and he didn't hear Baruch Hu, he could say Baruch Hu without them, and they reply Baruch Hu Hashem Mavarach, and Baruch Hashem Mavarach Lalamed, and he is Yotze. The Graz Girsah is, no, this is only when nine other people, uh, what do you call it, did not hear Baruch Hu, but be that as it may, that's the other part of the Brayta, which tells us, so we have learned two things in this Brayta, number one, that the Ushami Minhag, was that a minion, a minion meant six or seven people. Number two, we learn that Baruch Hu can be said even if it doesn't uh, precede a bracha. You could say Baruch Hu even without a bracha that's about to happen. So on the first point, about six or seven men, Rabbeinu Tam is, a, is quoted as having understood this b'rita to mean something entirely different. Rabbeinu Tam understood this b'rita not to mean that, that you, the minhagah Yerushalmi was that you could have a minyan with six or seven people. Not that they argued on the, Yusha, on the, on the Bavli's position that a Dabar Shabbat needed ten. Rather, their opinion was that if you had six or seven people that didn't daven yet within the minyan, then you can pray together. But if six or seven people did not uh, uh, daven already, then you may not daven with that minyan. You have to have a minyan of people where at least six of, six of those people didn't daven yet. So that's where that halacha actually comes from. Others, like the Rush um, and the Gra, completely disagree with Rabbeinu Tam's reading of, the, of the, this Brayta and Sechot Sofrim, and they believe that it means it literally, and that was actually their minhag. The, the Tamidei Rashi say that based on this, well, similar to this Brayta uh, and Sofrim, Rashi's minhag was that if a person came late to shul, and he didn't or he couldn't make it to shul, and everybody else already prayed already, he could still get up and say Kaddish, Kedusha, whatever, uh, Baruch Hu for himself, and people will answer for him in order so that he could be able to say, even if they all already prayed. Now, this is not a very accepted uh, minhag. I once saw a person do it. It's more done out of town in places where they only have one minyan. Um, but halachically, this is frowned upon, and most people do not do this, especially because the Graz Gersa of this Gemara does not allow for such an understanding of the Brayta and the Graz understanding of the Sprite is that nine people who already davened would not be allowed to answer for somebody who, who said Baruch Hu. So that's the halachic background for that. And therefore, halachically, there was some, uh, what's the word, basis for saying, according to at least this Gersa, there was some halachic basis for saying um, that, that you need either, firstly, you need six or seven for Minyan, uh, that didn't pray yet, and there's some, according to one Gersah, there's some halakh basis that even if nobody, everyone else davened already, you could say Baruch Hu and they'll answer for you. On this next point, that um, that there's no bracha following it at all, on this next point, there's two famous sources. One is the Abudraham, and one is the, the Rivash and the Tshuva. And the Abudraham says that there's 
two views among the Rishonim, among, well, really people in his era. <coughs> Some say that because there's no bracha following, and oh, I'm sorry, I should preface, the Abu Dirham and the Rivash both bring this minhag, <coughs> that before, that at the end of the, of the prayers, after Shachrit or after Arvit, there was this minhag of saying Baruchu before at the end of the prayers for people who missed it. So some people argued that it was okay based on the 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 Brighton Sofrim. And some people said, no, this is not okay. You're not saying bracha afterwards. What is Baruchu doing here? Um, the Abu Durham brings a raya for this Brightav. He brings a raya for this halacha from another position of the of uh, Amram Gaon regarding Arvit. And he proves that that this is the halacha and you can do it. The Rivash doesn't like it. The Rivash says that academically speaking, it makes no sense to say Baruch if you don't say a bracha afterwards. So why are we saying Baruch and then Aleinu? So the um, Rivash makes a compromise. The Rivash says that in Aragon, um, I think he believes, he says the Minhag was in, in Barcelona, they only said it on weekdays. But on Shabbat, where everybody came on time anyway, they didn't say it. But in Barcelona and in Valencia, or possibly in um, Algiers, they said it even on Shabbat when people came on time. So his compromise is, do like they do in Barcelona, only do it on the weekday when people don't come on time, but on Shabbat, do not repeat Baruch at the end of prayers because it doesn't make any sense. You know, you're not, you're not doing it before Baruch That was his compromise. At the end of the day, the Kafachayim brings the... Um, uh, what he, fundamentally, the Rivash holds it's not academically correct. So the, the Arizal, the Kafachayim brings the Arizal, Magen Avraham brings the Arizal, that holds that there's kavanot for the baruchu in the middle of davening, and there's kavanot for the baruchu after davening, and the Rizal explicitly holds that both baruchus are important, and a person should say baruchu twice. Therefore, there's kabbalistic significance to saying baruchu twice, and therefore it appeared and stayed in many sidurim, and many nusraot have baruchu at the end of davening right before aleinu. Furthermore, the Shibole Halakat says something very interesting by, uh, it's in Siman Ayin Zayin, he says that the reason on Shabbat we have, he brings from the Geonim, that the reason on Shabbat we have seven olim to the Torah, seven people who come read the Torah, is in order so that we should hear Baruch seven times from each one of the olim. Why do we need to hear Baruch seven times from each one of the olim? For all the people in the synagogue who didn't come to Shachrit all week and didn't hear Baruch they're going to refill their lot of Baruch They're going to hear Baruch seven times to fill up, all to, to compensate for all the Baruch that they missed uh, day after day. So that's the history of Baruch at the end of the tefillah. Uh, the Beit Yosef brings the Rivash, and halachically it, it appeared it, it uh, received some credence, and therefore many Sudarim began to add it at the end of the tefillah. I should note that there was an earlier minhag, and this is what I was referring to from Rav Amram earlier, that they wouldn't do, by Arvit, they wouldn't do Baruch before Aleinu. They would do Baruch before Shemona Esrei. So when they were done Hashkivenu, they would say Baruch This is the original Minhag, and the Beit Yosef actually brings it. Eventually it got changed and they did Baruch before Aleinu. But the original Minhag was that if people were coming late to Arvit, they would then realize people came late, and right before they started Shemona Esrei, they would say Baruch Hashem Amvurach a second time. That is so much for our introduction to Baruch Hu and why Baruch Hu appears in most <coughs> many Nusra'ot before Aleinu. Now, for Aleinu itself. So the origins of Aleinu, <coughs> where, where was it written? When was it written? Who wrote it? Um, where does it first appear? Is a very large, very fascinating topic. 
So the earliest attribution of the authorship of Alenu is that this claim is made by the Hasidic Ashkenaz, by the Rokeach, by the Kolbo, by the Rechot Chaim. Um, they claim they have a Mesorah, a tradition, that Aleinu was written by Yehoshua ben Nun. They bring allusions to it in the text, different ways to add, you know, there's a Yud here and a Hey there and a Shin there and an Ayin here. This is Yehoshua. Um, they say that this is a prayer that Yehoshua wrote when he conquered Eretz Yisrael. And when he conquered Eretz Yisrael, he composed a prayer that the Jews shouldn't be influenced by the idols of the land. And that came to be Aleinu, this beautiful, beautiful prayer, which says that we are here to praise Hashem, uh, the master of everything, and it, it distinguishes between our beliefs and the beliefs of the Goyim, and how um, their beliefs are, are uh, idolatrous uh, fallacies, and our beliefs is, is the true one God. And then you have the next paragraph, al which tells of this uh, idealistic future where all the, the nations will not necessarily convert to Judaism, but all the nations will um, eventually believe in one God and follow um, in the idea of one God. And that's, that's the, um, their understanding of why Aleinu came to be, because uh, Yehoshua had this idealistic vision and he, ha he needed to write a prayer for the Jewish people to... Uh, recite daily so that they should know and they should recall that um, that the the idols that they were about to encounter in this new land were all uh, fallacious. They were all worthless. Now, the issue with this claim is that this misora, this tradition that they claim to have, doesn't have any, um, the word is escaping me, but any evidence in Chazal. If there was such an attribution for Yeshua ben Nun himself to have written a prayer, to have written a tefillah, you would think that the Gemara, Midrash, Zohar, something, somebody would mention this fact. However, it doesn't appear anywhere. Um, and there's plenty of, it's, the Talmud is, 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 is replete with attributions of different tefillah to different people. And mysteriously, this was omitted. Another issue is the language. Aleinu Shabbat contains language which is very much uh, not biblical, so to speak. Very much not language that might have existed in the time of Yoshua. Yotzer Breshit, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Shechinato, right? Words like Shechina, uh, expressions like HaKadosh Baruch Hu, these were things that were created or became part of the Hebrew language much later in the time of the Mishnah. So that brings a major question as to if it really could have been Yoshua ben Nun, who composed Aleinu as we know it. Therefore, there are other um, theories as well. The earliest text, like uh, manuscript version, we have of Aleinu is in the Siddur of Ramam Gaon, right, 9th century, by the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, right? Everybody knows that in the Malchiot section of the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, when we're about to blow the first sets of Shofar, we say Aleinu l'shabach and Alkeinu kavalacha. So, according to the Iyun Tefillah, who's a much later Orthodox researcher, he he's from and he, you know his ideas were a, a lot more conventional. He has a very he actually doesn't agree. I, I find this surprising that he contradicts the Hasidic Ashkenaz, and he says it's more likely that this Tefillah was written by Rav, the Tana whose name was Abba Aricha. 
um, one of the, la- the, the students of, of Yehuda Nasi, who's one of the earliest Amoraim in, uh, in Babel. And we know that the Malchiot, the Tefilot, the prayers that were said before this section of Musaf Rosh Hashanah, are called Tekiyat Adirav. It's, it's called that way in, in Yerushalmi a couple of times, the, the blowings of Rav. When Rav would do the Tekiyat Shofar and Rosh Hashanah, these were the Tefilot he said. So if Rav was the one who composed many of the Tefilot we say in Musaf Rosh Hashanah, the Malchiot, Tichonot, and Shofrot, it's most likely that this section called Aleinu L'Shabach was written by Rav, and it, it would fit with the language. It would definitely fit um, with the style as well. The style is very much, I mean, Mishnaic. If you look at it, it's, it's most people, when they read Aleinu, they read it in the way it's formatted in the Siddur, which is like two paragraphs. However, if you analyze it carefully, it's really a poem, and it's a very early form of poem. It's basically, um, uh, how many? There's, it's basically paired sticks, and each one has roughly four beats each. It's unrhymed. You have Aleinu L'Shebech L'Adon Akol. Uh, it's four beats each, and if you would lay it out as a poem, you would see more clearly how it's uh, early, early, um, what's the word, Tanaic or uh, Mishnaic era uh, piyut. Uh, so it also relies heavily on Pesukim and, and the language of the Pesukim, which would also be more evident of a composition of that era. So that's that's so much for his um, for his belief, and you know, it's it's a convincing argument. Although people can argue both ways, you could say Yehoshua instituted it, and then Rav put it into Musaf Rosh Hashanah. You know, there's really no way to know because <laughs> there's just no evidence, um, no no exacting evidence as to its source. Now, the tour, interestingly brings the Hechalot, or the, Masa, the the Hechalot of the Markava, which is an early Midrash dealing with mystical Kabbalistic things, which has a very similar thing. I think it's called Alay L'Shabach. Um, it's basically the same language as Aleinu L'Shabach, and it's a Midrash of the Markava, which basically has the language of our, um, our Aleinu, which again also dates it. Now, we don't know how old the Midrash of the Markava is, so it's questionable which one you could date earlier. Similarly, the Orchot Chaim brings a Pirkeder B'liezer, which mentions Aleinu, and it says it's a very great shvach, and people have to say it while standing. Um, and if Pirkeder B'liezer said it, oh, we don't have this in our Pirkeder B'liezer, but if Pirkeder B'liezer mentions Aleinu also, that's also a Tanoic source for the, um, the Tefillah. And if Rabbi Liezer himself actually spoke about Aleinu, then it must predate Rav. So... Again, we don't have this in our in our Pirkei Bliezer, so the jury is still out as to the antiquity of Aleinu as to how old it actually is. Now, there's another claim made about Aleinu, and that is very similar, that it was written by Yeshua ben Nun. But this claim comes from a purported Teshuvah, responsa, from Rav Haigaon. Now, it's basically a very infamous Teshuvah. Why is it infamous? Because it's clearly a forgery. Now, <laughs> I'm going to try to discuss this because it's brought in quite a few books which should have not brought it because it's so clearly and, I mean, stupidly a forgery that it's, it's, it's also almost embarrassing that, that so many 
historical books have have bought have brought brought down this teshuvah. The teshuvah purports as follows. This responsa says that a letter was sent to Rabbi Haigaon, who again was uh, who died in 1038. And they said to him, we have two responses on our hands. These were allegedly Ashkenaz-ish uh, rabbis. They sent him a letter. Rabbi, we have, uh, please teach us, we have two letters in our hand. One is from, one response is from Rabbi Gershom, Rabbeinu Gershom. And he says that Aleinu was, was instituted by the Gaonim. We have another letter, uh, sorry, from the Rif. And the Rif says it was instituted by the Gaonim. We have another letter from, from Rabbeinu Gershom. And he says that it was instituted by Yeshua, which one is true. And Reb Haigaon says uh, Rabbi Gershom is correct. It was built, it was written by Yeshua ben Nun. And here I'm going to give you a commentary on it. And he proceeds to give a commentary on Aleinu. And he says, I could see that you guys uh, are aware of the mystical realm and you, you're making some allusions to different Kabbalistic things. So I am going to also uh, reply in a, in a Derech Remez and I'm going to explain Aleinu Biderach um, Remez, and he goes on to give a very mystical, Kabbalistic level interpretation of Aleinu. So, the problems with this are manifold. First of all, the Rif was born in, I think it was ten thirteen, about uh, yeah, about ten thirteen. So, the Rif would have been twenty five years old at the time when Rabbi Gaon was quoting him. And the Rif lived in Northern Africa. That's almost like saying you, you have a letter from the Chafetz Chaim where he's quoting the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I mean, it immediately arouses suspicion. And furthermore, there's no evidence ever of Rabbi Gaon having any correspondence with Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom was a leader in the same time as Rabbi Gaon, but they lived in different empires and very, very far away from each other. And it's highly unlikely that they were beyond aware of each other's existence, they highly unlikely they ever corresponded or were aware of each other's responsa. It's just patently absurd. And whoever this person who wrote this Teshuvah was must have been beyond stupid to think that he could sell a forged responsa from a Haigaon about this. Now, this leads to another question, which is, who was this? And who was this forger? And why did he... Um, why would he do this, and what was his objective? So, the this opens up a very, very nasty can of worms, which is a little bit out of scope for this uh, for this shiur. But there's basically two views of, as everyone knows, two views of the Zohar and its author. One view is the rabbinical view of the traditional view of the Zohar, is that it's a tradition from Shimon Bar Yochai. And it was written by it was written down finally by Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe de Leon. He was a, a Kabbalist, and he wrote down the entire Zohar, and he was the first one to actually publish it. That's the traditional rabbinical view, and he was legitimate, and he was definitely a tzaddik. And that's in general the rabbinical view of the Zohar. And then there's the other view of the of the academic world, in which Moshe de Leon is a forger and a fraud. And he basically wrote works of fiction. And he's a fascinating genius who, uh, you know, had a completely mystical system and completely very interesting person to study. But the Zohar is completely a forgery and a work of fiction. So one of the prominent academic researchers on this, uh, Wolfson, he believes that, that this letter was actually forged by Moshe de Leon. 
and he's just one of the many responsible of Haigaon, which he corrupted in order to fool people into thinking Haigaon was into Kabbalah. And, and to really, it's pseudopigraphic, meaning he's trying to create Kabbalistic works and say that earlier people said this or wrote this in order to lead, to lead credence to it and also to sell it for more money. And so he has an entire academic work on this, and that's his claim. Furthermore, there's a second tshuva, and this is why, again, I have to go through these, not because I want to, but because it, they get shared a lot uh, when you study the ideas of Alenu. Um, even the article brings this tshuva from Rav Haigaon um, in the Siddur. And that is, there's a tshuva from Rav Haigaon regarding Hilchas Ervin and Atil Sidaim, um, where the, 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 in, in the leak edition of this tshuva, um, which is the leak edition of this Shuvah Hagonim is more reliable in general. Um, the, the, this, the question to Rav Haigon is very simple. They're asking, how is it possible that people in the time of Shlomo HaMelech, before he was Metakein Ervin, how, uh, how are they able to survive without Ervin? And so Rav Haigon answers very simply, yeah, they were able, I mean, they probably didn't need Ervin, but even if they did, they probably were in a machanes, so they didn't need Ervin, so don't worry about it. Um, very simple to shuva. Uh, if you're studying Erevin, actually the question's a little bizarre, the answer's a little bizarre, but it's all the text we have. So there's a version of this teshuva in this section, uh, a book of, of teshuvot of the Geonim called Shari Teshuva, which adds a whole section where they ask him, oh, and Bishlama Aleinu L'Shabeach Yehoshua already was misakinet, and and that we understand that they said it even in that time. But uh, Ervin and Hilsudayim, you know, how could you wait until then? It's a whole addition in the question part. And then the answer part is identical. It's clear that the question part was corrupted. In the view of, of this academic researcher, as well as others, this entire Shari Teshuva section, uh, set of, of Teshuvot HaGeonim was corrupted by Moshe de Leon. And he was the forger. He was the culprit of forging and corrupting all these documents from the Gonim, either creating some of them or corrupting some of them in order to sell them for more money and to lend Kabbalistic weight to them. What's clear, regardless of whether or not you want to vilify Moshe de Leon or you believe in the Tsar, you don't believe in the Zohar, I mean, it's not going to make you a kofar this way or the other way. Um, everyone can have their own uh, opinion as long as you, <laughs> as long as you believe in the Yud Gimelikrim, I think we'll be okay. Um, but whether you want to vilify a specific person in the past or you consider him a saint, um, we don't have proof that it was Moshe de Leon who was the forger. There's evidence so that you could, you could point to different this and that, but we don't have conc conclusive proof. What we do know is that those tissue votes from Rav Haigaon, which purports to be from Rav Haigaon, are very, very unlikely to be from Rav Haigaon. And it's unlikely that the Geonim, uh, what's the word, ever had a... Uh, part in claiming that Aleinu Shabach came from, or the Rif, or Benu Gershom for that matter, that Aleinu Shabach came from Yehoshua Benun. In fact, the Geonim um, themselves, and this is, lends right into our next discussion, is how did Aleinu end up after the end of Daviding? So in the time of the Geonim, from Rav Amram and Siddur of Sadia, and then further down into the Spanish uh, to the Spanish rites of, uh, you have the Abu Dur down all the way, the Rambam down to Abu Dur to the time of the, the Abu Durham, it was never the Minhag to say Aleinu at the end of Davening. Uvalitzion was the proper end of Davening. After Uvalitzion, everyone would go home. So, the earliest source <clears throat> for putting it after Tefillah 
comes from France. And the earliest sources we have for it appearing at the end of the Tefillah, meaning we know it existed in the Musaf Rosh Hashanah, but who decided and who selected to put it at the end of uh, Tefillah? So the earliest source is probably the um, either the Rokach or the Sidur Rashi. So the problem with a test attributing this to the Sidur of Rashi or the Machsovitri is that these um, publications had things that were added to them a century later. So it's not necessarily so indicative of the dating, but there are writings from the Rokach and others from that time period where they're discussing a minhag that happened in, in that later 12th cent, the later half of the 12th century in France, where people would, would read the Mamadot, right? Uh, I, I, we've discussed the Mamadot a long time ago, so I'm just going to give you a refresher. The Mamadot were, in the time of the Beit HaMikdash, certain tefillot, which people who, who would come make their yearly visit to the Beit HaMikdash, they would say the Mamadot. These were like tefillot said in the Beit HaMikdash. So in the time of the Geonim, there was a custom to say ma'amadot as well, these tefillot that were also said in the Beit HaMikdash every single day. Um, in the time of the later Bali Tosafot, uh, sorry, in the time of the 12th century Tosafot in France, they would also, individuals, you know, uh, rabbis who were individually pious, they themselves would say the ma'amadot as well. And one of the things they would add was Aleinu L'Shabach. And this is what the Rakech actually recommends to do. If I remember correctly, it was the Rakech. I, I have to look that up myself, to, just to be clear. And later you find in the Machsurvitri, um, he says that, oh, and those should, people should whisper Aleinu to themselves. It seems that it's also a part of this Mamadot, that the people would be Shoesha Achat after, they would, they would wait an hour after Tefillah, and they would, they would you know, say certain things to themselves. And one of those things they would say is the Aleinu. It doesn't appear to be have become part of everybody's um, tefillah after Elenu until about a century later, until about the 13th uh, century is when it begins to appear in more of the Ashkenazi Durim at the end of the tefillah. Now, the Tur himself in Kuflam and Gimel brings this minhag, and it's likely that his family, um, you know, the Asher family, Rabbeinu Asher, borrowed this minhag from Ashkenaz as they went from Ashkenaz to Spain. It's likely that he mentions this minhag because he, um, his family did it, and therefore the tour brings the minhag to say Aleinu at the end of the tefillah as well because this minhag was becoming prevalent. And from the tour, the tour had a major influence on the tefillah. And if the tour mentioned it, it definitely went viral, and saying Aleinu at the end of the tefillah became very much a standard practice. The Kolbo, uh, meaning the Archot Chaim, and the Sefer Machim, and the Tzor, uh, bring this Minhag to say it every day after every single Tefillah. So that's pretty early already. You're talking around the 13th century. While there's a Sefer called Tzor HaChaim, he brings that the French only said it by a Tefillah with Shema, meaning Shachrit or Arvit, but they wouldn't say it by Mincha, which is an interesting uh, uh, Minhag, which I don't think is followed so much every day. The Arizal says specifically to say it after every tefillah. That's the Arizal's Kabbalistic position. The Mishnah says something interesting that most people, if they haven't gotten up to Kuflamid Gimel, uh, I think it's actually Kuflamid Beis in the Shulchan Aruch, would not have seen. But the Mishnah says that in, in, in Poland, where he lived, in the big shuls in Poland, the minhag was 
that if they were doing Mincha Mayerv back to back, they would skip Aleinu. They would skip Aleinu in between Mincha and Mayerv. So that was the minute, the, the minute that existed in Poland until only uh, less a uh, hundred years ago, if not even less. Um, lastly, just what when we're speaking about halacha, I did mention that there's this minhag to uh, stand. This comes from the Pirkei Eliezer. He says, Aleinu uh, is gematria me'umad, therefore it's a shvach gadol, and it should be said while standing. This minhag of bowing, of anachnu mishtachavim, probably just grew out of the text organically. However, the Arizal does attribute Kabbalistic significance to it, of being morid the shefa, bringing down different shefa from the previous olamot, uh, similar to the kriot of, of the Amidah. And so he does le- lend extra support to this minhag of bowing by Aleinu. Now, there's two other stories that are mentioned frequently whenever one will delve into the history of Aleinu. The first story, and this is just for the sake of covering some ground. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to give a shear on Aleinu and everyone's going to be like, but did you know the story of X, Y, and Z? So let's try to cover all the stories that are said about Aleinu. The first story is the story of the story of the martyrs of Blois. And if you look on Chabad.org, they have a long, the whole long story of the martyrs of Blois. Blois was a, was a if I'm pronouncing that correctly, B-L-O-I-S, um, was a, a town near Paris in France, where in 1171 there was a horrible, terrible massacre of Jews, and. Long story short, if you want to read the whole story, it's on Chabad.org. I mean, that's an embellished story, but there are other versions of it as well. Um, I'm trying to think if there's an academic version. Uh, can't remember offhand. No, there is. Uh, s- let me think. I uh, can't remember offhand. Sorry. But the martyrs of... of base, what happened was is that there was one of the, this is one of the earliest incidences of a blood libel where the Christians claimed that a Jew ha- was using blood for the matzah, etc., etc., and like savages, what they ended up doing was condemning them to be burnt at the stake for not admitting it, for not apologizing. They beat them. They wanted them to convert. They did not. It was only 40 people who lived in Blois, and if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and they, um, and they refused. They put... I think it was about 30 people into a house, locked it, and lit it on fire. And they all died inside. There's more, there's more to that story there if you, if you read it about people coming out of the fire, going back in, getting killed by the sword, etc. It was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And word of this tragedy actually reached the ears of Rabbeinu Tam through the Rishonim in Orléans, or Yaakov in Orléans, others, they sent him, he was the leader of the Jewish world in, in Europe at the time, and Rabbi Tam went so far as to make a fast on Chaf Sivan, which commemorates that day in 1171. And it was, that was indeed fasted for many, many years. Now, the reason this pertains to Aleinu is because the Christians heard the Jews singing as they died. They didn't know what they were singing. And I think his name was Yosef HaKohen, like one of the Jews who had witnessed this, wrote to Rabbeinu Tam that he heard them singing Aleinu, that as they died, they sang Aleinu l'shabeach l'adonakol, to praise Hashem for only believing in Hashem and not uh, converting to Christianity. And they sang a beautiful song of Aleinu. And with that song, 
that melodious song which the Christians were very impressed by, they uh, sent their souls heavenward. That is the first story which is often told of Elenu. Now, some people go as far as to attribute this to the reason why it got appended to the end of Tefillah, although that's not very likely historically. It is more likely that it is a part of, it, it, it became, it was left over by part of the Mamadot. It's not, I mean, definitely, it probably, it probably gave a lot of PR for Elenu and made people care much more for the Tefillah. Definitely didn't hurt. But the, um, the idea that, you know, that's how it got into the sea door is, is questionable. Okay. Another story which is told about Elenu is actually told in error. I mean, I think it's still up on Wikipedia or something like that. And that story is the story of Nicholas Donan. Nicholas Donan, Friar Nicholas Donan, was an apostate, a Jewish convert, who uh, converted to Christianity, the Franciscan order, actually. And this is also quite a long story, but it leads to the disputation in Paris. If, to make a long story short, Rebichil mi Paris, one of the Rishonim, put him in Cherem for approximately 10 years. Um, this did not work well. Unfortunately, this only turned him very sour. He was a tremendous scholar, and Nicholas Donan eventually, in his anger and wrath, um, uh, broke from the Jewish community. And he went to Pope to the Pope at the time. I think it was Gregory or someone like that. And he brought a list of 35 charges against the Jewish people. And one of those charges, famously was La Mishumadim. And the charges basically, to give you some historical context, we were a little running out of time here, but the, the church at the time did not care, probably did not care, nor did they know about much about the Talmud. They didn't realize that there were texts outside of, of the Torah which were important or necessarily heretical to the Jews. And they didn't think that there were any texts which they had to actually censor or worry about among the Jews. Nicholas Donan made it his life's mission to cause trouble for the Jewish people and to bring charges against the Jewish people based on the Talmud, that the Gemara contained a bunch of things that, that bashed on Yeshu, their leader, their whatever founder, and he brought charges that the Jews did this and did that. And they, one of the charges was La Mishumadim, that, that the bracha in Shemona Esrei for La Mishumadim uh, was specifically written against Christians, which is actually pretty likely. But that was one of his 35 charges. People will say in error that Nicholas Donin also filed a charge to the Pope that Aleinu Shabach contains the following words. It says, La Hevel Varik, right? That Shehem Mishdachavim, for they bow, La Hevel, to, to air, Varik, and to nothingness, La Kelo Yishia, right? So Varik is coincidentally the same numerical value as Yeshu. So Lehevel Varik, an emptiness, has the same numerical value as Yeshu, and that's why they say Lehevel Varik. And the custom is of the Jews to spit when they say Varik, and this is actually, by the way, brought in two places. Um, and therefore, uh, they're trying to defile our God. That was the, uh, the charge of Nicholas Donin. So this is actually not true. Nicholas Donin himself never filed this as a charge. It was much later, in the, in the 1300s, that this became a uh, Christian polemic. Earliest record we have of it is actually in a Christian document from 1323. Um, later in 1399, actually, I think it was, was it? I don't remember the name offhand. There were char more charges 
leveled against Elenu, but Nicholas Donan himself uh, was not the uh, sole, the first person to, to, to level these charges. Interestingly, on that point of Hevel Varik, um, the Hasidic Ashkenaz in their Sidur, at least the, the manuscripts we have, which aren't uh, rubbed out, it does say that. It does say <laughs> that Varik is Gematria Yeshu. They, they have trouble reconciling that because in their view, Yehoshua composed it. So how could he compose something which was going to you know, Yeshu wasn't, wouldn't be born for another 1,500 years. So uh, they say, no, he had Ruch HaKodesh, that, you know, one day it will be Yeshu. Another version of it actually says that Lahevel Larik, which was their version, Lahevel Larik is Gematria um, Yeshu U Mohammed, like uh, <laughs> Mohammed, uh, which is interesting and funny. Um, that I don't know whether it's true. I mean, it's... If it's either coincidence or it's deliberate, one of the two. Uh, but this minig of spitting by it is actually brought in the Maharil. It's brought in the Taz. Um, people did this. When they said Varik, they spit on the ground. Was it necessarily for Yeshu? It's impossible to know. But that was an actual minhag, which did happen. The Chabad still does it to this day. So, um, yeah, that, that, that all happened. Uh, later in Prussia, most famously, there was a, a problem with... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was 1399 was the first time there was a, a apostate by the name of Peter. Um, if you look in the Sefer HaNitzachon. Oh shoot, did I? One second. Yeah, if you look in the Sefer HaNitzachon, um, one of the these books written to support uh, Jewish claims against Christianity, um, that, um, that also brings Peter's claim uh, charge against Alenu, another apostate who lived later. In Prussia, this actually involved legal action. Later in the 1700s, there was a, another famous incident where the Prussian government, um, based on Alenu, sent guards to the shul to make sure people wouldn't say Alenu out loud. It was a mess. Um, this was mostly based on anti-Semitism, obviously, and the result of much of this anti-Semitism was both self-censorship and government censorship. Many of the Sidurim, um, if you, if anyone's interested, Ruth Langer did an extensive study on this. Uh, many of the Sidurim have uh, crossed out and rubbed out and blacked out sections of the section of Alenu, which says, because they were afraid of the government censors and they had to block it out, even though people said it. Eventually, though, printers began to omit it entirely because they had to sell and they couldn't be afraid of the government, so they had to sell books. Therefore, uh, the printers omitted it entirely and it began to escape from the Ashkenazi Sidurim. The Svaradim didn't have the same Christian problems, but the uh, Ashkenazi Sidurim began to lose the, that, se that sentence. So it was really the Prussian government which really uh, made this a real problem. And eventually the Ashkenazim took out So... Later, eventually, it got put back in. Many Sidurim today, the Ashkenaz ones, do re return the full language of it because they realize without a doubt that it's just a mistake. All of the early versions of Elenu had it, and it was just taken out for censorship reasons. Um, okay, so that actually concludes the uh, historical background of Elenu. Next week, Bezrat Hashem will look at the text itself. Um, the text itself is beautiful and inspiring, uh, but we probably won't spend, I mean, we won't have that much time to spend on it. There's some new scouts we have to look at. Um, my idea is next week to do the text of Alenu 
and to incorporate a couple of other little things which became the minhag to say after Aleinu, like the Yud Gimolikrim and the Eser Zechirot and little things like that. And with that, with that, we're basically done Shachrit. And next week, Bezat Hashem will uh, finally, officially finish Shachrit and we'll continue with uh, Mincha, Arvit, which won't take too long. So thank you everybody for coming and we'll continue next week.